Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe Podcast. Today's special guest, Brian V. Klein, joins me as we kick off the first episode of the Star Wars Book Club with Light of the Jedi, the first novel in the new High Republic series. All that more after this commercial break. We have no control over Welcome back, everyone. I'm Matthew Host. I'm joined today by Brian V. Klein, who's been a regular part of the Stranded Panda community, has now done a, a couple of other podcasts. And Brian, I know you've been a huge Star Wars fan for a, a long time. I'm so excited to have you with us today. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? My pleasure. Not bad, not bad. Um, Just kind of as an introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your love of Star Wars and your background, because one of the reasons I really wanted you on here was... You joined me for a discussion of all the new Star Wars content that was announced by Disney+. And every time a new show was going on, you were just making the connections to, oh, that references something from this book or this show that came out. And just the encyclopedia of knowledge and love for Star Wars I, I saw from you was just, that's exactly what I wanted to get on the show. So tell us a bit about you and Star Wars and kind of where that started and, and how what it all does for you now. Okay, well, it first started the summer of 1977. I hadn't seen the movie yet, but my brother and I, he had, he was two years older than me, so he saw it a couple of times. For some reason, my dad didn't want me to see it until I turned four later in the year. But I played Star Wars with my brother all summer, uh-huh. where we were, one of us was Darth Vader with the black wiffle ball bat, and one of us was Luke Skywalker <laughs> with the yellow wiffle ball bat. I played the story with him long before I saw the movie, and then when I saw it, it was just, you know... Love at first sight. I saw it a bunch of times. I got all the toys. Typical, you know, kid from my age just had all of that. And then when, and even read all of the old Brian Daly, like the the Han Solo trilogy and the Lando Calrissian trilogy. But then fast forward to 1991, I graduate high school, and that was right when the Heir to the Empire came out, and the Dark Horse uh, comics were coming out. And pretty much ever since then, it's just been I've read and just absorbed everything as far as you know the the west end games books and the uh, the novels the comics and even the new stuff so it's yeah it's pretty much almost second nature to me now so but there's so much stuff out there so much information no and that's great and i think you and i have had very similar journeys i'm a couple years younger than you so i literally don't remember a time in my life when i hadn't seen star wars the original movie um my mother used to love talking about how when I was very young, if she had to run out to the store for a little while and didn't have a baby, you know, she couldn't afford to get a babysitter or whatever, um, all she had to do was put the Betamax tape, yes, Betamax, mm-hmm. you and I are probably old enough to remember that, <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, put the Star Wars Betamax tape in the TV because she knew that I was not going anywhere for two hours. I was just going to sit right in front of that television no matter what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so glad for that because... One of the things that I'm so excited about with the new directions that Disney is going is that they are, they're clearly really expanding the universe and they're doing it in a way that pays homage to so much of the content that's come before. You know, we're bringing in stuff from the Clone Wars, from Rebels, from some of the video games, as well as stuff that is clearly influenced by and and maybe exactly like or maybe, you know, just inspired by stuff from the Legends canon, all those books that kind of went away. And what I really like is that Frankly, a lot of the time when you get into conversations about that, that's where some of the gatekeeperness that that happens in a lot of fandoms, but especially in Star Warsness, comes around. And the attitude I want to have on this podcast, and I know you really do, from the stuff you, I've heard you saying in writing, is that 
we want to share how awesome all that old content is with folks, both for the people who know it, who love hearing about it and talking about, and if the new people who are just enjoy knowing it and seeing all the Easter eggs and things like that. But if you have, if, if all you've ever watched is The Mandalorian, if all you've ever seen is one or two movies and love it, then you're just as much of a Star Wars fan as any of the rest of us, and your voices are just as much valid. And I, I'm really excited to dive into you with this, uh, Brian, because I know you have that same kind of attitude of like, let's just... There's so much to enjoy, and if people don't know it yet, great. The gates should be wide open so everyone gets to come in and see. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's negativity in Star Wars as far as the gatekeeping and the toxicity is is kind of high now. And so mm-hmm. that's why I try to avoid a lot of that stuff. But it, if anything, what Mandalorian has shown is that there's so much more out there than just what is in the the visual medium and as far as the movies and TV and they're bringing it all in and I know most of the people that have seen because Mandalorian is just ridiculously popular not all of them or I would say not even a majority of them had probably even seen Clone Wars or Rebels or whatever which a lot of these characters were being brought over from so it's an entry point to that and there's no need for people to be going like well if you didn't know who this person was then blah 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 but it's like no that that's the the goal here is to try to get people to learn more by you know going back and looking at the stuff that was being used now and not being all you know judgmental about the fact is like well you can't be a true Star Wars fan <laughs> I don't think that's like that should be like that with any fandom but there's yeah. people out there that you know it's and Star Wars is a big one because there is so much out there and there's so much that they can for lack of a better word cherry pick from and. Yeah. It's uh, it's good to see, and that's what we'll even get into now with this, the, this new uh, time frame they're working in with the light of the Jedi and the High Republic era. Exactly, and as I said, this is the first in our um. Exactly, and as I said, this is the first in our book club series, and what we're doing here is about once a month as a special bonus episode, we're going to look at one of the Star Wars books or a series of books, and really talk about them and get into what we love about the story what that story tells us about the, the larger universe, as well as ways we think the, the the stuff that's in it may well be influencing parts of the content that's still to come. And our goal here is that if you're a longtime fan, if you've read that stuff, great. We hope you can join in the conversation with us. But if you haven't read it, um, if you haven't read it, we're going to spoil it a lot. So if you want to, you know, definitely hit pause and come back to this. But if you don't want to read it, but you'd rather just listen, you know, get caught up to what the story is saying without having to read the book or play the video game... That's totally okay, too, and this is a good place for you as well. And here, at least, we're not uh, we're starting out not by jumping back into the old canon or old legend stuff, though we will do some of that. But we're actually starting with a book that literally just came out a week or so ago, Light of the Jedi. And, Brian, tell us a little bit about this book kicks off the High Republic sort of time frame and a whole media sort of series of stuff that's happening. Tell us about High Republic and what, what's happening with that in Star Wars. Okay, well, the... Um and as we go on talking, we're going to use a, the, their timing system in Star Wars is based off of what is called the BBY, which is the Battle of Yavin, which was the end battle in the first Star Wars movie. So when you hear stuff that's like 32 ABY or whatever, it tells you because that's like their focal point. So the High Republic starts in 232 BBY. So it takes place literally about 200 years before the beginning of The Phantom Menace. And it's just a... It, it's great because this whole time period has never been explored before. And so it's all fresh. The only things we really know from the movies is that 
The Sith are still out there, and they're in hiding. They're biding their time. But other than right. that, we know absolutely nothing. So now they have this this whole marketing blitz with junior novels, young adult novels, a comic, two comic series, um, mm-hmm. adult novels, and it's and then also there's going to be at the end of the seer, at the end of the High Republic era, which is going to be about a hundred years before the movies start again. Is there's going to be a Disney Plus show called The Acolyte? So they have a whole bunch of. Um, product that's going to be coming for it and who knows they could even go if it goes as well as it seems to be going now they could start doing even more for it so yeah i think the point you made there that's so important is that this is new ground mm-hmm. you know it's funny as i've gone through all of the movies again and a lot of the tv shows and 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 done episodes on them for this podcast one of the things that i realize is often the biggest complaint that i have and a lot of fans have is when it's hard to fit these stories into the existing canon and how do they fit and how does it all come together and part of that's because pretty much every part of star wars up until now has essentially been telling different parts of the same story Mm -hmm. you know the rise and fall of anakin skywalker and of emperor palpatine and all the little things that fit into that and a lot of times the complaints people have about things like the Clone Wars or the, the post calls or things like that is it doesn't seem to fit what other what they think of how the rest of the story should go. And we can argue about that till the cows come home. I think some of that's legitimate. I think sometimes we can hold on a little too much to our own headcanon. I know I do that certainly all the time, yeah, way too much. True. But but the the thing I think that's so good about this is we're starting with a blank slate, you know? There's legend stuff about this time, but none of that is officially canon. And so it's going to be very hard for someone to look at anything that's happening in these books and say, oh, no, 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 that that doesn't fit this story. That doesn't fit this story because we know this time existed and we have kind of a vague, you know, we know that Yoda has to survive till the end. We know that right. um, the Jedi don't encounter the Sith yet because, you know, they haven't yet. But other than that, it's a pretty wide open world. Right, and even the legend stuff, which was very, very minimal in this time, is almost non-consequential. The only thing that, like we were saying, that we knew about this of any importance to later on is Yoda, and you don't really go into his backstory at all. And yeah. so, like I said, this is just, you know, there's no um, handcuffing any of the storytelling. Like, a lot of times when you set something in the prequel era, like even the prequels, Anytime Obi-Wan or Anakin or any of those people that are in later movies, the you know, there's no real danger that they could be put in because, you know, they're going to survive. This right. is, like you said, the only thing we know is that the Jedi won't encounter the Sith. Yoda's got to survive. A couple of the other people that are in this book that were are in the Jedi Council and the prequels have to survive. But other than that, nothing. Yeah, it's, it's wide open. It's yep. wide open. And it's also just nice because... And we're going to talk a little bit more about the book generally, and then we will, especially for those of you who haven't read it, get into a quick plot summary and then go into specific details. But something else I love is that we've always been told about how the Jedi were the guardians of peace and, and, the, and justice in the galaxy for millennia. Mm-hmm. But we've never really seen that. No. You know, the starting three movies are all after the Jedi have fallen. And then the prequels and the other shows that happen around then are all happening, like, while they're falling, you know? From the very beginning, we already know that some of the corruption is starting to spread within the Jedi. They're kind of losing their way. They're becoming too politically enmeshed. They're becoming too enmeshed in the military, things like that. We never really get to see just what is this wonderful age of the Jedi when when everything was supposed to be so good and happy and right. And I, I love that we're seeing it. 
And I also love that we're just seeing the little flaws, the little cracks in the armor that we know in a couple hundred years are going to start turning into all the problems that start coming up. Oh, exactly. And also, if it would have been, if you, if it wasn't foreseeing those cracks and flaws in this book and in, in this whole series, you'd almost think, okay, now even something, something's up. Something's weird. That's a little, no one could be that pristine. And that's what right. I appreciated about this book too, is like, we'll discuss some of the stuff that, I mean, even though we know they're not all humans, humans in a sense have human tendencies and just it's built into their system. So mm-hmm. for them to act on that, but then it's also like, well, the Jedi forbid this, forbid that. You have to act yep. a certain way. I mean, we see that a lot in our regular day with a lot of the, like in the Catholic Church, just for not to get into politics or religion, but they have that same type of, yeah. you know, um, rules there. But at the end, everyone's human. So to see that as far as the Jedi go is sort of, you know, okay, it's, you know, they're just regular people that are call have, have a higher calling, I guess, that they're uh, exactly. answering. So Exactly. And for those who haven't read it, one of the interesting plot points is that we meet a couple of different characters who are all clearly having, like, longing for connection with with their friends, you know, and, and it, it can be romantic. It can be sexual. It can be just a desire for, for more. But, you know, when Yoda warns Anakin and Obi-Wan warns Anakin of attachment, Anakin is not the first Jedi to crave attachment. Obi-Wan wasn't with him and Sabine, Satine. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. a great story that we're gonna see more of. Um, before we get too deep, let's, Brian, you want to take your shot and just kind of take a few minutes to try and give a summary of the plot. Uh, yeah, I got this here. So, Right now, the uh, like I said, it's 2.32 BBY, the galaxy's at peace, and the, the Republic is getting ready to open the Starlight Beacon in the Outer Rim. Well, there's a ship called the Legacy Run. It's in hyperspace, and all of a sudden, it encounters another ship in the hyperspace lane. And so in order to avoid that, which should be physically impossible to have another ship there, it uh, breaks apart by trying to avoid it. So now, this broken apart ship is starting to exit hyperspace in different areas of the galaxy and they're called emergences and uh the republic and the jedi are called in to help destroy them or to stop them from doing any more damage uh they find out one of them has a pass passengers in him so we saved that and then we find out one of them has this gas that if it hits the sun can blow up so they try to avoid all of this major problems from it uh the chancellor's a little scared about it so she closes the hyperspace lanes because there's something wrong they think well, enter the Naiho, who are a bunch of marauders from the Outer Rim that can navigate these impossible paths that run through hyperspace by using a human navigator to detect them. Uh, the Republic also devises a way to protect where these emergencies will happen, along with the Nihil, with the ha- help of this navigator. So the Nihil used to exploit this knowledge to extort the Iriadu system, and that fails, and it helps them destroy the moon. So then the Republic finds a flight recorder implicating the Nihil in the whole um, legacy run um, explosion. So then the Republic asks for the help of the Jedi to uh, help them fight the Nihil, and they agree. So the Nihil send one of their Tempest divisions, which is their fighting divisions, to go and um, find the flight recorder. And it's a trap. And the Republic and the Iriadans, which is the the place which uh, they blew up the moon, and the Republic 
all defeat the Nihil. So now that they think that the Nihil are defeated, their leader explains that this has all been a plan of his. The ship in the hyperspace lane, the emergences, the Jedi involvement, sending his Tempest into the uh, trap, all because the Republic is opening the Starlight Beacon in their part of the galaxy, which they were under the radar, but now they're declaring war on them. But then at the end, one of the Jedi feels that something more evil and just sinister and pain to the galaxy is coming. I think that's a good summary. And for anyone who feels a little overwhelmed by that, there's a lot going on in this book. But I think just the key ideas are the you know, the Jedi are out there. They're helping the Republic. The Republic is led by this chancellor who has come up with his slogan, we are all the Republic. She really wants to just be unity and happiness um, and hope. And everyone's kind of taking, you know, that her mantra has become the mantra of everyone else. And they're trying to push out to the Outer Rim. And then this group that's out in the Outer Rim of pirates and, and mercenaries and, and, and folks like that, they don't want any part of this. And so there's the conflict there. And we're getting to see the Jedi be the Jedi and, and you know, rescuing people and, and saving the day. And I think one of the things I like most let's, – let's dive into how the Jedi are portrayed because one of the things I think I like most about it is a running theme throughout the movies has always been this idea of the people have forgotten about the Jedi – and, you know, you can raise questions about how did people completely forget about the Jedi? How did it become a dying religion in 20 years? But even putting that aside, we've never really gotten to see what that's like. And I, one of the things that we get a lot here is the sort of internal mindset, the, the men, mental monologues or the spoken monologues of people who are experiencing the Jedi. And some of them are like, oh, cool, the Jedi, the Jedi Knights, they have lightsabers, they do these powers. I understand all about the Jedi. Others just think of them as, as these, like, mythical creatures who can shoot lasers from their eyeballs or, you know, do other feats of magic, either great or terrible. And I, I love that. I love getting to see that there's the Jedi themselves and then there's just all this mythology that's been built up around them and no one really knows who they are and there's all these different ideas out there. Oh, definitely. And it's the way that they're described in in the the book is pretty much how... I've always thought that Jedi have should have been always depicted is that they are the the peacekeeper peacekeepers. I mean, especially from when they go to the the, the planet that they're um, the first, in the beginning of the book, and two of the Jedi go there to help keep the peace because there are you know uh, there's a ship that everyone hit, they they put an evacuation order on the planet, and some people are being greedy, not letting the people outside the compound gates in, and the two Jedi are coming in there to keep the peace between the Jedi or between the people and the um, the guards, I guess, of the compound. But right. other than that, it's pretty much there's nothing, you don't feel anything sinister, which you sometimes feel on, with them in the, the prequels. And it's just that they're, the, the way I've always thought that Jedi should be, should act for the most mm -hmm. part. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. And I, I love that scene that you mentioned where, it's just one little thing happening as part of the evacuation. There's a, a ship that is very nice that's owned apparently by these rich people. And they're going to take off with a lot of empty space while there are these hundreds of, you know, poorer people who don't have access to ships like that, you know, banging on the gates to get in. And what I love here is that the Jedi come along and at first they try to convince the people to let these other people in. And then when they don't, they're like, fine, we're going to knock down your gates. Like there's no sense of like, okay, it's your ship. So you get to decide. It's nope. You have a resource that all these people need. We're, we're taking that resource to, to use it for the good of all, um, which is, you know, put aside any political interpretation you want to put on it. it it's very much a stance. It's very much a 
we are for the good of all. And if you're in the way of that, even if, you know, you think you have the right to do that, we're going to run over that, which is, I, I think it's a great scene. And I think they're absolutely right to do it. But you also can start seeing why some people are like, these Jedi are kind of pushing their way into everybody's business to, to tell us what to do. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it took the act of the, um, the I forgot what they described them as, the, the marauders that came to attack mm-hmm. this compound for their own use. The two Jedi, along with some of the, the people there, helped defeat them. And then they were still, they were getting shot at by the guards still. And then all of a sudden, the one Jedi, uh, Loden Greatstorm, just does his Jedi thing, jumps 30 feet in the air. And next thing you know, he's standing on top of the uh, the wall next to him. And then they finally realize, like, Oh, okay, that's right. You guys are Jedi, and yeah. you know they're they're they have a power that people don't have, and they don't realize it, or they, it doesn't come to their forefront of them thinking, and then they realize what it is. It's like, okay, we're we're done. Yeah, they have this power, and they have if they decide they know what's the right thing to do, they're going to make it happen. And if you disagree, mm-hmm. they're going to fight you about it. You know, um, right. which is I, I think it's brilliant because it's both this noble, wonderful thing of we're going to help people. And you also start to see how that idea in the wrong hands or twisted the wrong way can become really dangerous. And I also like, too, because we were bringing up the whole situation with Loden Greatstorm, is that they use in the the way what we hear it from Obi-Wan Kenobi calls it a mind trick where you, mm-hmm. you know, suggest something to someone and they do it. In this book, they call it a mind touch. Yeah. Which is a little bit less, you know, intimidating and evil sounding. But at the end of the day, it's still you get someone to do something maybe against their will to appease you. But it helps. It's usually for the greater good. Right. As the Jedi define it. <laughs> as the Jedi define it. Yeah. Which right now happens to be as we would define it. But that's and there's another I, that's clearly a theme of the book because it's not just Loden who brings it up, but two of the other Jedi. um, Avar Chris and Elzar Mann, who are a very interesting couple. Avar is she a mother? She's the person who's pictured on the front of the novel. Uh, she's a human female, very powerful and very much a key part of the Jedi at this point. And she's very close to Elzar Mann, and we'll talk about their closeness in a second. Mm-hmm. But one of the running things they have is that she's a Jedi Master and he isn't, in part because he's unconventional. And one of the ways they talk about him being unconventional is. He's a lot more comfortable using mind tricks or mind touches than most of the other Jedi are. And it's interesting that the way the two of them talk about it, because it's not like this huge ethical thing, but clearly Avar is a little uncomfortable with it and, and teases him somewhat, but in a little like, <coughs> maybe that's why you're not a master. Maybe you go a little too far. And, and so I think it's interesting that they have given us two different instances where Jedi are wondering about the ethics of that kind of mind touch and mind control. I think that's going to be a theme that we see more of in these books. Oh, exactly. And and for a lot of the times when Elzar Man was described and be in talking, reminded me a lot of Qui-Gon Jinn where he yeah. was, he used it to, he was, because Qui-Gon was always talking about the living force and the people are like, well, the living force isn't a thing, yada, yada, yada. But with him, it's sort of like he does his own thing. It's not terrible it's not against the Jedi code, is so to speak, but he sort of does the the bending, not breaking, and certain yeah. point of view type things. It's sort of like the guy that doesn't do bad, but he finds his way around things, so it's still right, it's the, but it might not be ethical, you know, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, like, the first time we see Watto, the, um, uh, the, 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 the first dealer. time we, 
yeah, the first time we meet Watto, the junk dealer who winds up also being the owner of Anakin and Shmi, Qui-Gon meets him, knows that he's a dealer, doesn't know he owns slaves, doesn't know there's anything terrible about him, and basically tries to give him counterfeit money to buy the parts for his ship, you know, with the whole, like, yeah. Republic credits will do just fine. The point is they're worthless. He's giving, he's trying to get this guy to give, take worthless money for the parts. That's not really cool. But like you said, it's, he's doing that kind of like, but the whole Republic is kind of, at least Naboo is all counting on this. It's so important. It's so needed. And then, of course, we find out more about Watto and are like, yeah, no, go ahead. Rip him off. That's fine. Yeah. But at the time, I mean, the Republic credits are good, but not to him and not to that planet. So it's right. just like, you know, it's like selling ice to an Eskimo where they don't need it, but it's 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 valuable, but just not to him in that situation. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think Qui-Gon Jinn is a great comparison there. Um, and so let's talk about some of the other things that we see about the um, the Jedi. One of the things is, is we hear from a number of them the hunger for attachment and that some of them, I think, mm-hmm. have found this way to have a kind of balance of they can be very fond of each other, but still hold that, like, avoid the danger of attachment. Others, I think, that we're pretty clearly supposed to think are going pretty far, pretty far past that line. Right. And that was the main thing with the Avar and Elzar uh, mm-hmm. thing because it almost seems like they're implying that there is an attraction because they've said that they've been with each other they grew up as younglings together padawans so they've been on the same trajectory pretty much their whole life right but there is a couple instances like there was one with um uh Mikhail Sutmani who is an authorian jedi which is one of the hammerheads and he's talking with uh Tamani or Tayami who's a duros like Next time we do something, I'd like to team up with you because I feel that we we work well together. And Tiami jokes, "Oh, what, are you forming an attachment with me? You know that's against right. the Jedi code. I have to report you." And he starts stammering, and she's just like, "I'm kidding." Yeah. So it shows that they <laughs> could be joking about it, but knowing that it's it's beneficial for them to work together. But then they also show, you know, we're in that spoiler section when she gets killed. He feels remorse that she got killed but that's just i mean that's something that you can't really even though jedi aren't supposed to form attachments you still have to be able to have some kind of feeling when someone that you know and work with and for lack of a better word that they use love is killed i mean they can't if they just stop you'd think that they were like automatons then if it just was like oh they're dead let's move on to the next thing no you have to feel that you know, I think one to me, one of my favorite lines in Revenge of the Sith, and I, I hope the writers realized what they were doing and not just being kind of dumb, but is when Anakin Skywalker, now Darth Vader, says, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. And Obi-Wan responds, only the Sith deal in absolutes, which, which is, is an absolute, an absolute yeah. statement. <laughs> yeah. And I hope that's inten- because I, I hope that's intentional because I what I get out of that is the Sith live by absolutes, but so do the Jedi. And those absolutes are kind of like, that's the sort of thing to aspire to, but everyone knows you're never going to quite get there. Like, don't have attachments. Sentient beings attach themselves to each other. That's what we do. And so there's a sort of idea of like, there's a gray area that you're kind of allowed to play in as long as you don't go too far. And everyone kind of understands you're probably never going to be the the pure, you know, celibate you're never going to be the pure monk on the mountain who just has no attachment to anyone. Um, and even with a- Avar and Elzar, the Star Wars novels have always been YA kind of, and there's a real fade to black coyness about things and they never go into it. They don't need to, but they talk about how Avar and Elzar had moments of connection 
that were allowed as kids and then kind of, you don't know like if this is about just holding hands or playing doctor or, you know, making out as teenage. We have no idea exactly the details, but we don't need to because the clear implication is they were allowed to kind of like connect and experiment a little bit as, as kids, as teenagers, but then they had to push that aside. And they both still remember those. And they both, they still have this strong affection for each other. And they're both, I think, you know, uh, the two you mentioned earlier, I think they're pretty clear on what side of the line they're on and they're just joking about it. Avo and Elzar are both trying to justify this to themselves. I think they realize that they may well be in danger of going over that line. And it seems like the times they've had it, especially like at the end when they're sitting at, it's the epilogue of the book and they're sitting in that grand um, garden on the... what's it called a starlight beacon and then all of a sudden elzar you could sort of see like they're almost getting ready to do something and then he's just like okay you know what i've got uh i'm not going to be here much longer so i want to take this whole thing in and sort of i'll i'll beat you back up at the oh, you know yeah. back in the regular <laughs> so it's sort of like the the things that are there's something there that's stopping them either mm-hmm. from an outside source or it seemed like this time he was just sort of like okay we we can't do this they're yeah. they're cognizant of it but it's just like you're yeah you're almost you're almost seeing that they're this is going to happen sometime you know in a very different part of my media consuming life i love rom-coms i love teen dramedies like you know gossip girl or or whatever it is about teen rom- you know high school romance and college romance and that scene could have been taken straight from one of those. Like the mm-hmm. whole, like, you know, the two people who want each other, or love each other, but because they're on different sides or they're, you know, one of them's dating the other's best friend or whatever it is, like the the lovers who can't be with each other, that scene was straight out of a rom-com. So it's like, right. okay, I like that they're going there because it's, A, I think it makes for an interesting part of the story here, but I also think it really helps to put Anakin in in context, you know, that... Anakin's not this crazy hormonal Jedi who felt things for Padme that no Jedi's ever felt. It's that for all the things that were going on with Anakin, that he wasn't raised as a Jedi, that Obi-Wan is very hands-off, whatever it is, he couldn't resist the way so many others have, but many, many others have felt the same, tempta- same temptations he did. Right. I, I you know, basically chalked it up to the fact that the reason why they were afraid of training him in the first place was is that he was too old had already formed attachments with his mother didn't learn from a younger age to you know sort of quash all these things that it seems like uh, most of the jedi have but that we see in the clone wars you know with obi-wan and satine falling for each other and just not acting on it so yeah it's a level of a you know like how much restraint you have speaking of anakin and the kind of uh directions he falls into Another one of my favorite Jedi characters we're introduced to is Porter Engel. Um, Porter is, he's a great character. He's betrayed as this, you know, grizzled old warrior. He's fought the fight. He's done the things. And now he's kind of happy to have hung up his swords and, you know, cook for people and tell them stories and be part of their training, but he doesn't want to fight. You know, he's very much sort of the, the retired mentor master who has to pick up his sword and fight again towards the end of the books, towards the end of the book. And there's a great scene where you're entirely in his head as he starts out very, you know, like, look, I am balanced. I am not giving into anger. I'm not giving into vengeance. I am going to help the most people here. And I, I hope that doesn't require the deaths of the people I'm fighting against. But if they make that choice, that's their choice. 
And then as the fight goes on and those people do more terrible things, they attack him from ambush, they kill the, the animal he's riding, they, they hurt one of the hostages they have, you see him get angry. And you see him shift into this position of wanting vengeance. But he keeps rationalizing it himself. He keeps telling himself, no, this is just the right thing to do. When it's clear that he's becoming angry, like he's angry at these people and now he wants them dead. Oh, yeah, he's using their evil to justify his retaliation to it. And, you know, like I said, he he even has in his head, he's like, I'm not going to do anything unless, uh, yep, and they attacked him from behind. He's like, now they're trying to shoot me in the back, so now you're going to die. And, you know, you killed the beast, now you're going to die. So he's not just using it as vengeance, he's using it as, like, revenge in a sense but it's in his mind, it's justified. And I, mean, yeah. I guess there's a reason why he's 300 years old and still alive. <laughs> yeah. And so. I, I think, like, it is very minor. I mean, it's nothing compared to, like, Anakin with uh, on Tatooine after his mother is killed. Oh, but it's just, it's just, again, it's just seeing that little bit of a crack there. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about my favorite Jedi from these books. We only get a, from this book, we only get a little bit of him. I cannot possibly pronounce his name. What's the name of the, the Wookiee Jedi Padawan that we get? Oh, uh, Buriaga. Buriaga, thank you. Buriaga we're introduced to. He's a Padawan. He's part of one of these groups. We don't see him do much. But we get something that we've never gotten before in Star Wars, the internal monologue of a Wookiee. At least never before in movies, TV shows. We may have gotten it in books before. And I just loved it because, of course, you know, we meet these characters who Han and others seem to understand them. It seems they're saying these, you know, fully thought-out sentences in their language. But all we hear are the growls and roars and things like that. And so it's hard to think of them as, you know, he's using this incredibly intellectual language and has a very sort of strong emotional intelligence and is reading the room. And I just loved getting to see that from inside the head of a Wookiee. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of like they only have the one, uh, what's her name, Nib Asik, who is Buriaga's master, is the Mm -hmm. only one that can really understand him. And it's... Just having, like you said, the way that they, and for the the people listening, I actually listened to the audiobook version of it. So they, oh, when, you, when you're doing that, that's how you could understand the pronunciations of the names. That's why he least. knows the names better than I do. Yeah. But they explained it because it, that was actually what was a cool um, way thing in the audiobook was that the um, narrator, Mark Thompson, who, by the way, if you guys never listened to the audiobook books, they're not just them reading the books. It is a production. Each character has a voice that's different. There is the sound effects. There's music. It's pretty much like you're listening to an audio drama, and it's like, or or just like the movie without seeing it. But the way that they describe when Buriaga's talking, it's like the rookie growl, and then it goes into it's just like I can't believe it's happening. Like they explain oh, it awesome. that way, and you hear it. But for the most part, that's his main drawback too. Is Buriaga's is that he's out there and no one can understand what he's saying. So if he, they're at a, I think they're at a, he's the one that saves the passenger section because they're about ready to shoot it. And then he, he's freaking out because he's like, no, there's life on there. So they stop, they f- devise a way to capture it because these things are going at near light speed. So the Jedi have to use all those techniques to capture it. And they're, these, these survivors are praising him. And in his head, it's just like, 
don't smile because that way his smile is, is it's like teeth being bared, like a dog smiling and it's almost aggressive. And he knows he can't do that because people are going to think that he's, you know, if they can't understand him, they're thinking that he's getting aggressive and a big seven foot tall Wookiee Jedi is going to be an intimidating thing to be snarling at you. For sure. Especially because, I mean, he's very introverted. He's shy. Oh, yeah. He comes across as he hates the idea of being thanked because he thinks that's just what the Jedi are supposed to do. He's very humble. And, like, you know, for anyone who's ever had the experience of being shy and introverted at a party and not really wanting to talk to people, now imagine that where everyone thinks you're a hero, but they also, when they capture this so well in the book, they also see you as kind of um, not a pet, but, like, they, they're not expecting to have a full conversation with you. They're kind of talking to you the way they might, like, an animal or, or a child. And, of course, he's having – he has a high level of emotional intelligence. So he can see on their faces everything that's happening. He understands – all this going on and he has no ability to communicate with them and it frustrates him so much. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where they go with him as a character. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. He's interesting in that sense. Cause in the old EU, we had a, um, a Wookiee Jedi. And so with this one being in Canon, it's sort of just like, you know, this, this book brings up a lot of stuff. We got a Wookiee Jedi. We got a Trandoshan Jedi. We got an Athorian Jedi, which are all background characters from the original trilogy. And mm-hmm. now it's just like, next thing you know, all we're going to need is a, uh, a Rodian and the Ewok Jedi to see what happens. <laughs> For sure. I would love to see an Ewok Jedi, but I'm much more pro-Ewok than most other people. Yeah. Um, we can do so much more on the Jedi, but let's move into the State of the Republic. Um, what's happening with the Republic right now and with Chancellor So? Pretty much, it's just she's. It seems like she's trying to. Uh, this starlight beacon of hers is just a. It's. You could just imagine it as being a, like a, a a way station in the middle of nowhere to sort of help bring the outer rim, which is where it is, into the fold of where the core worlds are. Mm-hmm. And so she's basically trying to expand the galaxy and expand the reach of the Republic to help people. Uh, that are out there, but there's some people that don't see it that way, right. especially the Nihil. They're thinking that they're stepping in their territory, which they you know, were under the radar before, and now, oh, crap, they're a threat to us. Right. And she's a very interesting character for a couple of reasons. And the first one is, and I wonder if you got the same sense, I got a real sense of tragedy from her because she is so dedicated to her mission. I mean, she... The way she's talked about and the way everyone else looks to her, it almost reminded me of kind of Barack Obama when he first came to came to the office in terms of like the hope of audacity. And she really thinks everything can happen and everyone believes in her as well. But of course, we as the readers know that it's going to fail. On so We don't know how it's going to fail or maybe everything she does will work but then be undone in 150 years. But we've seen what the Republic looks like in 230 years. And it's not what she wants. The outer world's... The Outer Rim and the Middle Rim, they do still feel totally disconnected from the core. That's part of why the the Clone Wars happens. And Tatooine and planets like that are still totally abandoned and ruled by the Huts and things like that. So I I couldn't help feeling like a sort of sense of like, you know, it's like it almost reminds me of Titanic, you know, of seeing all these beautiful things happen and all the dreams people have on Titanic. And you just know the iceberg is out there. Right, it almost seems like this whole thing is destined to fail because we don't see any evidence later, but we don't know how long um, it was around. It could have ended up being more of a, you know, a less, it it worked, but not on the, the grand scale they thought it would. Like, it wasn't going to be like the uh, 
this is the first one, and we're going to you know launch thousands more of these things to help unite everyone from all across the galaxy, which is the whole we are the we are the republic, you right. know, uniting everyone because everyone doesn't always want to be united in that way. So right. there's going to be resistance and there's going to be, you know, uh, kickback from it. So, I mean, but in the meantime, I'm excited to see where all of it goes. Yeah. And I'm, this is kind of a larger point, but I'll start just with her. I was really happy and I have to admit really surprised to realize by the end of the book, she is still sincere and genuine because mm-hmm. I've read books before. And often when a leader is just so incredibly magnanimous and focused on these beautiful dreams and has such these wonderful ideas, you always think, of course, you know, they're a bad guy in disguise and they've got some secret plan. And I, I wonder if this was intentional by the writer because it's so well done. Two different characters, both of whom could have been big villains, her and then the head of the Nihil, who we'll talk about later, at the very end of the book, they both give these long internal monologues about all their plans. And in both, I kept waiting for, you know, and of course we'll do it all for the glory of the Sith or mm-hmm. something like that. And I was so glad we didn't get that. And that from her, at least, she is genuine, it seems. Like, this is not an act. This is not a front. She really means this, which I have to admit I was surprised by. Yeah, that was one of the things that I liked a lot about this book was that none of the the Star Wars storytelling tropes that they could have fallen into, mm-hmm. they never did. They never did the, oh, this person that the Chancellor saw never was doing this all for a different reason than the reason that is explained to you. Or the fact is that Marshawn Rowe, who is the head of the Nihil, he never, there was no bigger plan than what he said at the end. So right now, the fact is that we, the Sith are still in hiding. Yeah. We don't need them to, we, we, I'd like to see a story where that isn't an external factor sort of guiding the antagonists because we know nothing's going to really come out of it in the grand scheme of things for more than a couple hundred years now. So right. let that be in. The, let them still be in that that process of them planning. Everything that happens doesn't always have to fall back to uh, the Sith in that way. Right. No, I think that's a really good point. That's exactly how I feel. We, the Sith, feel like a story that we've seen so many times, and it really has been established that Jedi were. You know, the Sith weren't there for a thousand years, but the Jedi were still pretty busy fighting things. So mm-hmm. I imagine we're going to get something about some dark side user at some point. I think it's very possible the Martian Row, what he's able to do with the hyperspace is connected to the dark side somehow. And we'll, we'll get to him in a bit. But yeah, I just I, I was waiting for that other shoe to drop and the Sith to show up. And I'm so glad they didn't for all, all the reasons you just said. Exactly. And they have explained that that Acolyte show that takes place at the end of this high republic era is going to be based on a sith acolyte or dark side acolyte dark side and the sith are sort of the same thing as light side and the jedi but just because you practice the dark side say like in the clone wars asaz ventress she wasn't a sith she was a dark side you know former night sister type thing so it's always still that well the certain point of view i guess the sith weren't around but when you're using the force as a dark side user Right. It's kind of just you're not doing it in name only type thing. Yeah. And like, I think it's really interesting to know that there are people who use the dark side of the force who aren't Sith. And the like you said, the Night Sisters and a couple other groups were established. I've always wondered if there's groups like that who are using the light side of the force who aren't Jedi. We get them in some of the Legends books. We don't get them in this. 
Oh, yeah. And I, I wouldn't mind if, like, towards the end of this High Republic era, we start to see that there's been a Sith Lord who is, you know, pulling a few strings here and there and having mild effects, and that's sort of the basis of the Acolyte. And maybe it's even... I imagine that one of the Jedi who we are going to get to... The Acolyte doesn't take place for another 130 years, but mm. I imagine that one of the characters who we'll get later in the High Republic books may be a Jedi or a Padawan who becomes the Acolyte. I'm fine with that. I think that would be really interesting. But you're right, it's, it's nice to set up a world that doesn't have the Sith in it yet, so they can be added as a little thing and not take over the story. Right, and that's what this, another good thing about this book was, is that it didn't use any of that, and it also didn't use, as far as, like, the Force, the only ones at first that we knew that was in this book was Yoda, Mm -hmm. And he was name dropped and then he showed up at the end and that was it. So they didn't use him as a focal point of the storytelling, which is fine because actually I like that even better because you're not relying on pre-existing characters to anchor something. Yeah. Even the three that were in this, there was a couple, two other ones, um, Yariel Poof and Operancissus, which were on the Jedi Council and the prequels that are in this, and they're on the Jedi Council still. So obviously these all three of the characters' species have a long lifespan, but it wasn't a um, it wasn't an anchor for the story. They used all these other pre uh, or all these other new characters, and it worked. I mean, that was a big right. swing. For by the way, this book was written by Charles Soule, who's only written two other novels. He's mainly a comics writer for mm-hmm. um, Marvel and DC, but he's done a lot of the Star Wars um, storytelling recently. He had a huge run for years in Marvel as well. So he's a comic book writer. It's not mm-hmm. always easy to change from comic book to prose, and I think he did a bang-up job. So, And I think that's, just, that's also worth saying, kind of just stepping back for a second, this is just a, this is just a really good book. Um, and in a lot of ways, to me, this book is to the rest of the books that I've read. And granted, this is my very biased view, and you may completely disagree, and others may as well. I feel like this book is to the rest of the books as The Mandalorian is to Star Wars content. And what I mean by that is that most Star Wars content up till now had been not only YA, but it had said a lot of the conventions of 70s and 80s science fiction, and then that carried that forward of these aren't quite real people with real problems. They're, they're much more kind of like... There should sort of rules of how people work and how things work that exist in this world that might not translate to our own. And some people loved them, but but some folks who don't love science fiction just never really got into them. Mandalorian, oh. I feel like, has had a much larger appeal in maybe not larger, but a different appeal, in part because it feels like it's it's much more grounded in like people I can relate to. I mean I can relate to Star Wars characters, but it feels much more like I think how to best explain it. It doesn't come off as YA to me. It's not that it's the tarp topics are darker. I mean, in Mandalorian, they're much grittier, but it it comes across with a level of realism even in that world. And I felt like this book was in the same way. Like it was, I've really enjoyed a lot of the earlier Star Wars novels that I've read, and we're going to enjoy talking about them. I'm not sure I would have read them if they weren't about Star Wars characters. This one, I think I would have happily read, even if it was about, you know, just a random science fiction novel. I agree with that in, in a lot of sense in this book. It was well written in this fact that like the first part of it where they're dealing with the whole fighting the emergences, mm-hmm. it had a high level of suspense for me at least. Oh, very much so. Because each chapter opened and it would be like 90 minutes until the disaster, 60 right. minutes to the disaster. And it's sort of breaking it down like almost like 24, the TV show where there's a clock ticking and there's like, oh, this is, you know, something's going to happen. 
but the way that they went about the writing of it was just top notch. I mean, the first two the first two chapters both take you really inside a particular character in a particular world and get you really revved up to spend a lot of time. And then the chapter ends with all the people in that part of the world dying. You know, because yep. first it's all in the legacy run and then the ship blows up. And then it's all about the people on this watch station who just have so much complexity and so much going on and they have lives back home and what's going to happen. Oh, and they get hit by a fragment of the legacy run and they're all dead. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> that one such... character. There was that one character who was... Uh, wait until his shift ended so he could go to the bar and yes, hit uh, like the, right. the waitress and he was so in love with her and you get involved with it and then he's dead. It, it reminded like, me of, do you watch Law and Order a lot? Uh, not really. I used to watch it a lot and every Law and Order episode starts with a couple of characters having a conversation about whatever it is and then they discover a dead body and that's how the murder mystery starts. But sometimes they'll be having a conversation about like, something at work or in the, their city or in their lives. I'm so interested in it. I'm like, oh, right. The show's not going to be about these people. Damn. <laughs> that's how I right. felt in this, you know? And that that's just great. It's just great writing. Yes, I totally agree with that. So with that, come on, let's uh, back up a bit. Um, so we're talking about the Republic. So talk about the Starlight Beacon, the Outer Rim. What's, what's happening there? And what is it that, that we're really trying to do with the Starlight Beacon? I think from what, what it's... Um described as in this book is that it's basically just a it's a way station it's an oasis it's a it's a point of in the, the outer rim where it could just bring the new republic or the republic out to them and there's going to be a jedi uh base on there and it's going to have the um by the way uh this wasn't brought up but the the republic itself does not have an army the right. Republic uh, Defense Force is based pretty much all of the individual planets have their uh, their ships and their stuff, and then when they need to, they coalesce and form. You know what's the uh, ends up being the the army. So there's going to be no in army guard of like the, the, the in a sense they can call together, but yeah, it's the planets that have a military, right? And which is the same way that goes all the way up until the prequels because you know the the republic doesn't have an army but then they form the grand army of the republic with the clones so that's the first time they actually have a standing army so i'm assuming that the starlight beacon is going to be sort of just like a um i would almost say like an embassy out in the outer rim for the republic now let me just ask you a, a technical question because there's a part here that I don't understand, and then maybe you knowing a lot more about this can help me, because I imagine some other readers are confused. A rim is a circle, and if the core is the middle, then they write about this as though the rim, the outer rim is all one geographic area, and the starlight beacon will be close to all of it. But if, if you're at one point in the outer rim, then you're the furthest thing in the galaxy away from things on the other side of the rim. Am I, so is this is it not a full rim? Is that kind of a misnomer? It, like it's a it's a misnomer. It's like that. There's the core. I know this is this isn't the exact analogy, but think of the area that the um, the the republic governs as sort of like a piece of pizza on a whole pie. So you've got the center, which is the, the 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 middle of the pizza with a little bit, and then it jets out like a pie-shaped wedge, and the outer rim is the furthest part from the center. But I understand what you're saying. It's not the whole the, – the galaxy that is run is not like where the outer rim would would circum, you know, circumvent the whole right. galaxy. Right, okay. It's, just a, it's, it's the furthest part away. It's like the uh, – it's like the, the, the boonies and the center of the galaxy is like the big city type thing. Right. 
that makes total sense. I just it was just the the space geography of it was throwing me a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's such an interesting project they're going to do. And I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the military because that was again another little. They don't make a big deal of it, but there's one conversation where, as you said, they're going up to do battle against the Nihil, and the Republic military, such as it is, because there, there's some military, it's fairly small. They ask the Jedi for help. And even here, the Jedi are resistant because, and they bring up, the Jedi are not supposed to be military leaders. And they're worried about getting involved in the military conflicts of the Republic. And it's just, it's so subtle, but you can just see the through line to how in the Clone Wars, that's one of the problems. Is that Jedi were generals in an army and they never were supposed to be. So I just, I just loved that little detail thrown in. And it'll be fun to see how they play with that here. And I hope... And this was probably my most excited. Actually, probably excited isn't the, uh, the the greatest word to describe it. I actually had to. I was listening to this on my my biking into work. It's four thirty in the morning. I hear them discussing this whole thing, the Jedi Council, and Operancisis, who, if you guys remember in the prequels, he's sort of like the uh, he's a long white beard, but he's half his body is a snake. So mm-hmm. he's. Obviously, when you see him, he's a very recognizable character. And they're discussing the how if the Jedi should get involved to help the Republic fight these Nihil. Because, like you said, they're they're peacekeepers. They're not warriors. Right. And he brings up, he says that the Jedi won, or the Jedi helped the Republic win the Great Sith War. Well, as soon as they said the Great Sith War, I had to stop and I go, wait, did he really just say that? Because the Great <laughs> Sith War is there was a great comic run from Dark Horse in the mid-90s called Tales of the Jedi, which took place four, five, six thousand years before BBY. And if they end up just being able to take this, since there's nothing in canon from that time period, and just say, you know what, all these characters and all these events, they happened. Because the Old Republic um, video game is still considered non-canon, which that takes place 3,000 years. But when they said that, I was just like, Oh my God! There are so many great characters, so many great things between yeah. Exar Kun and Frida and Ed and uh, Yuli Keldroma, and it's all this great storytelling. And if they just say, "Yeah, we're going to bring that into canon because it works," and they've already discussed this, I was just like, "Great! If you're going to cherry pick that, bring the whole thing in because you can't sort of name something that's that big." And then be like, it's not, that would be like saying the Death Star, but it turns out it's not a big galactic moon-sized, right. you know, space station that kills something. You can't name drop the Great Sith War and have it not be the same thing or close to it. And what I imagine they're doing right now is, you know, because if you take all the different seeds like that that they're throwing out there, you'd basically have like just 24 hour a day, nonstop Disney programming on star Wars. And I think we just, we don't, there aren't enough sound sets in the world to make all the things that they want to make. But what I think they're doing, and it's kind of brilliant. And they did this with Mandalorian is they're just going to throw out those little things and see what the fans respond to and kind of see like, Oh, look, people are really going crazy about the Sith war. Maybe we, we do a show about that in five or 10 years. Oh, look, they're really interested in this little nugget. We did about this Jedi having the, like Thrawn, I think is a perfect example. You know, they just, mm-hmm. He was a, a character in the books, and then he came over to Rebels, and now we're, we're almost definitely going to get him in the live-action stuff. So, yeah, it, it's exciting to see that. And that was great what they did with Rebels with Thrawn, was they brought him in, and they sort of, they didn't have his backstory at that time, and then they worked in the novels, the old, the original new canon Thrawn uh, trilogy 
to show his backstory, which are even going further back now with the uh, the ascendancy um, books, and then everything forward, they're sort of letting it go as it was because it's not going to be. And I'm actually kind of glad with this with the them not wiping out, but any of the stuff that happened post Jedi in the old legends, they're sort of saying, well, no. Because yeah. a that that create that handcuffs your storytelling, and b there was so much stuff out there they couldn't just uh, adapt all of the Black Freak Crisis and the New Jedi Order and of the course. courtship of Princess Leia and stuff like that because it would just it would it would stifle the creatives that yeah. are trying to make new content. So. I mean, to me, it's very much like what the MCU has done. You know, in terms of we're taking the story, the characters you know, we're going to give them. Basically the same origin stories, but update them. You know, so now mm-hmm. Tony Stark starts in the Afghanistan war, not in Vietnam. But then the actual adventures he has in the movies are maybe inspired by some things like Civil War was, but they're new. I think it's the same thing. Like Thrawn, the heart and soul of the character of Thrawn is very similar to the character that Timothy Zahn wrote. But he's not oh, doing the same things. And I think that's that's great. And we're going to I'm going to. We're going to talk about uh, that character quite a bit because the Heir of the Empire books are definitely one of the ones we're going to review in a later book club. All right. Especially if you keep the same core, like how Thrawn in Rebels and in New Canon still uses a culture's art and their music as a way to figure out how they're going to uh, approach warlike scenarios was something that was established in the original, you know, the heir to the empire trilogy. And that's still the same effect of this character. If you could, if you just take the character and name only, and then just wipe everything out, it's kind of like, why would you do that in the first place? So, yeah, definitely. Um, so anything else we want to talk about in terms of the state of the Republic and what's happening there? Should we now get into the Nihil and, uh, the, the antagonists were were given for this, for this book? Um, we pretty much, I think we pretty much hit all the key, uh, the points. Cool. Yeah, and one last thing I wanted to say is that when I, the way they describe the Starlight Beacon, for anybody who's a fan of Star Wars, te- uh, for anyone who's a fan of sci-fi television, Star Trek, or things like it, if you think about Deep Space Nine or Babylon Five, mm-hmm. that that's kind of what I get when they they talk about Starlight Beacon. You know, it's a place for peace negotiations. It's a place for a waypoint for travelers. It's you know, it's all these different things, and clearly there's going to be a million. Like I could totally see a series that just is based on what happens at Starlight Starlight Beacon. Oh, yeah, definitely. So let's now get into the Nihil, because I think that's... Um, clearly, they're going to be the main antagonist, I think, for a, a big part of this whole series. Um, and I think you gave a great description of them in terms of, like, they're the marauders, they're pirates, and mostly they're just... The reason why their leader, especially, Marcian Rowe, is so dedicated to fighting back, he often... He kind of strikes me as a mirror universe version of Malcolm Reynolds in that, like... Malcolm Reynolds is genuinely a good guy. He wants his own way. He doesn't want people to to push into his sky as he talks about it. But he, you know, he's not going to go out and kill people and harm people if he can avoid it. Marcian Rowe is obviously much evil, much more evil, much darker. But, like, I could easily hear him saying, it's getting awful crowded in my sky. You know, that idea from Firefly. Just his motivations seem to very much be, I like the chaos. I can survive in the chaos. I can survive... With just this Wild West attitude, I don't want the Republic coming in here and telling me what to do. And even in his own group, he kind of feels that way, too, because he sacrificed a third of his, pretty much his army, to make it look like the Nihil were destroyed. But when he sent um, Kasav Miliko, who is the Weequay Tempest leader, to retrieve the uh, the flight recorder, 
and it was a trap and they destroyed everyone, he was okay with that. He actually sent them there because obviously I think it was because he thought he knew that one of these three Tempest leaders, which are the actual military leaders of the group, Marshawn Rowe really has no power to that right. sense, but he has, he's the eye of the Nihil. He can read, and we can get into this in a bit here. He can read how they end up using the hyperspace to their advantage, but he sent one of these guys and all of their, their followers and all of their army, like their, their grunts, to their deaths in order to make a point of, you know, we're there, we're out here. We are not going to be messed with, but now they're going to be, they're, they're, they're lying back in a sense because they, they think the Republic thinks they're gone because the one um, Tempest that they destroyed, they're under the assumption that that was all the Nihil. I think you're so right about that. And he kind of is making that point both outwardly and inwardly because he's showing the Republic, but also, as you said, he starts out not, the in control he he gives them their pass through hyperspace but they make their own decisions and he just gets a third of whatever you know money they steal and this is also a power play though because by the end of it that's no longer changed he's now in charge he's made everyone feel like they need him and the person who's pushing back against him he just sent to their destruction and i think it's a it's a brilliant power play it's very kind of why i was wondering if he was going to become sith is it's very sith like in terms of just how much he manipulates people Oh, that's that's true. But here's I think one thing we got to explain too, which gives him his power. Yeah, let's talk is, about what exactly it is he does with the hyperspace roots. Right. Okay. So basically, in this time frame, the hyperspace, you can think of the hyperspace as a uh, like a toll road, where right. it's you're, you there's you get on and get off at certain points, and that's it at this point. It's not like in where the in like Rogue One, you could just take off from a planet's atmosphere and shoot off into hyperspace. Here, you have to get into um, uh, basically like an on ramp or off ramp to get onto it. Well, there was, if you guys remember at the beginning of The Force Awakens, uh, Max von Sydow's character, Laura Santeca. The Santeca family in this time period were the hyperspace prospectors, and they found the ways, they mapped basically these hyperspace routes. Right. Well, one of their, um, re- one of his relatives, Mari Santeca, who when she was six years old, was able to visualize these paths. They were offshoots of the main road. So it's pretty much like uh, there, there's no need for the exit ramps and entrance ramps. You could just jump and go through hyperspace whenever you wanted. Right. Which, and, which is just to clarify something, why at the beginning of the book, um, another ship shows up and, and forces the the legacy run to crash. No one's ever even conceived of the idea. The idea is that each one of these little highways you're on, it exists only for you. And so the idea that anyone else could be in your highway just makes no logical sense. And so that's right. part of why what they're able to do is have their own ship jump in and basically almost crash with someone else in hyperspace. Right, so that's the power he has, is that he has her, this Mari Santeca, on his um, his flagship, the Gaze Electric, in a... Because she's, she's 100 and some years old now, and she's in a life support pod. She's kind of has not... Deme- Maybe she has like a sort of dementia, because sometimes she's coherent to who these people are. Sometimes she thinks Marjan Rowe is her father. Sometimes she thinks he, she knows it's his his captor, but she can still see all of these routes, all these paths that no one else can. And he gets them from her. So basically, he all he is is a messenger, but no one else knows that he has her giving 
uh, him these pats. It's actually a family tradition that's been passed down from his father and his grandfather that was the first ones that used these when they formed the uh, the Nihil however many generations ago. So that's right. his power he has. So he gives these paths to the Tempest leaders. There's three of them. There's Lorna D, there's Pan Ada, and there's Kasab Milico, who then use them to do the bidding to, you know, because it's easy for them to get in, do something, and escape by using these paths that no one else in the galaxy can even thinks exist or, or is possible to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's a really interesting thing they're developing, and I don't think he's going to be Sith. Well, uh, let me say that again. It's really interesting they're developing, and, and part of what like you, you talk about is Marshawn Rowe has the power, but not because he has actual any knowledge himself about hyperspace. It's that he has access to this person who does. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is interesting is in the book, she's very old, and mm-hmm. and it's made very clear she's in very poor health. And what he is doing, like the doctors are telling him, like, you have to stop. You have to let her rest. She can't keep doing this. So I think part of what we're getting at is that this is not an unlimited resource he has access to. She's going to die probably pretty soon. And so he's just trying to get as much out of it as he possibly can now by basically learning this completely new way to travel that no one yet understands. Right, because he knows that if she dies, he's pretty much useless. Mm-hmm. He he has a good, I guess, strategy. He's a good strategist as far as in his own mind, because all I said was with when he laid out his plan later on, where it was just like, I sent Milico to his death because uh, he did this. And so I, everything was all his grand scheme of the ship being in the hyperspace lane was planned by him. Uh, the legacy run hitting it or avoiding it to break out these emergencies was an, was a offshoot plan of his main plan. Right. Uh, there is one top that Lowden great storm that we talked about the Twi'lek Jedi. He ends up getting captured at the end and brought to uh, his ship. That was part of the plan too. So he seems like all these little things he did are all coalescing into a grander scheme right. that he had and so at least that way you can't just be an idiot in order to get those done. So he has he has that um, like mental acuity to be able to get all this stuff planned, and it works so right. far. And one thing I think is interesting is, again, I don't think he's a Sith Lord. I don't think we're going to have that connection. I do, though, get the sense that the, the Santeca woman, we keep hearing about how the Force is about what binds everything in the universe together. Hyperspace is part of that. Mm-hmm. Do you think her ability... That she is some kind of force savant who just has this, like, she's incredibly touched by the force, but she can't really control it. She can just see it all the time? Or is this just something totally unrelated? I would think that it would have to be something where she has some semblance of force ability because uh, no one else has this. And it's a, it's, it's a fluke, probably, that it happened to be a member of a family that was already laying out the hyperspace routes. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was that it was the situation she was in when she was younger, because like I said, in the book, they said at six years old, she started having these abilities. If it was, if she wasn't put into that situation, she probably would have never known that she could do it. So, but I think it has to be some kind of latent force sensitivity that is, yeah. you know, it, I think even too, that Marciana Rowe may have a little bit of um, force sensitivity, and, but without any kind of training or any proper way to use it, he's not fully capable of just being um, more powerful. Which I think would be fun, too. And in Rogue One, we did get introduced to the idea that there can be characters who have, like, 
little bits of force sensitivity and maybe they could be trained to be Jedi or Sith or maybe that's just all they have. But it's nice to have more people in the world who are, you know, it's not just the normal people and the Jedi Sith force users and everyone, there's nothing in between. It's nice to see there might be a, a bit of a continuum here. Right. And I think that's that's one of the I know there's always a big discussion with the whole midichlorian thing, but I think it acts as a way to describe why it's sort of just like in real life terms. If you grow up and you're a kid and you want to play basketball, if you don't have enough ability and talent to do it, you're not going to be able to do it professionally. No matter how hard you train and practice, if you don't have a certain natural ability, it's not going to come, you know, it's not going to be able to, you're not going to be a professional basketball player. So in that same sense, if you don't have a more, an ability to, relate and commune with the force you're not going to be a jedi no matter how hard you train to do it and there's even in the old legends there's people that are mm-hmm. um like uh, zane carrick who is from the knights of the old republic has a force sensitivity but it's kind of on the lower spectrum so there's a lot of stuff that he can't do that normal jedi can't well, but he's still effective in a way and it's interesting when you mentioned basketball player i thought you were going to go in a, a related but somewhat different way and i think i see it more like this and there I, I think our views overlap but maybe are a little bit different emphasis because what I thought you were going to say is, what I would say is, if you want to be a pro basketball player, being born seven foot tall really, really helps. Oh, yeah. And But then there's someone like Spud Webb. You know, you can be mm-hmm. born five foot six and still work like crazy and, and have that natural athletic ability and all the drive and all the heart and become a pro basketball player. But it's much harder. And it's much less likely. And I think this is going to be a whole other debate we talk about another time, but the thing I always didn't like about the Minichlorians is the idea that it now makes Jedi genetic instead of about your will, your who you are. And, and so I like kind of what you're saying and what I'm saying is that it can now be kind of a balance. Like the Minichlorians help, but it's not all that there is. Right. I mean, as long as, and I think everyone has a, the, the possibility to do it. It's just a matter of being trained to harness that ability. Exactly. Exactly. Let, I do want us to wrap up pretty soon, so let me just ask one more thing about the Nihil. Um, one of the reasons why I really like that they address how hyperspace works is, frankly, as it seemed one of the biggest inconsistency across the movies. You know, sometimes a journey through hyperspace is this long, drawn-out thing. Other times, in other movies, like, it really seems like hyperspace works exactly how the plot needs it to, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, how difficult or how hard and what the computer is. It now seems like they're establishing more fixed rules for hyperspace. And a lot of what we've seen later, as you said, doesn't quite fit these rules. I'm wondering, do you think that they're just kind of trying to retcon everything and say, no, this is how hyperspace always works. And that's hyperspace should work like this for all the movies and all the books. We just haven't always shown it that way. Or do you think maybe what we're going to get is that by the end of this time, the things that Martian Rowe is trying to do is so well-known and so established that now everybody can do that. I think that that's more of the the point, is that hyperspace, even though it's still closer to our well-known time period, where mm-hmm. it's still 200 years beforehand, think of it more of like the um, introduction of cars. Right. They were slower. They didn't have as many routes to go. They had to go a certain way, and it took longer. But a hundred years later, it's just those all those rules and uh, laws for how it works are completely thrown out because 
there's they found new ways. They yeah. once you find that first ability to do it, like go hyperspace, all it takes is just trial and error to figure out, you know, that's just how evolution works in a sense, is that yeah. you start with the first thing, hundred years from now you take that kernel and now it's a whole different thing. But the base of hyperspace is still the same. It's just yeah, because I know like the, the, the Nihil have special engines. They have the path engines on their ship that allow them to do this. Right. Who knows that the engines in, you know, the the original trilogy and the prequels and stuff are more like that, where it's just you jump in wherever you want, you jump out wherever you want, but the same physics apply to where now you're in hyperspace because like they explained it, it's almost like jumping into the quantum realm in the MCU where you're right, in a different plane of existence. Kind of thing, yeah. Right. So you're not just going faster than the speed of light. You're actually doing it, but in a separate you know universe, so yeah. to speak. And I'd like it if they do it that way because I don't care about the consistency of some of these things, especially because, I mean, this is a story that now has literally been told over 45 years. And technology changes, you know? I love Star Trek, and the modern-day episode, the modern-day shows about Star Trek show the Enterprise being able to do things technologically that the 1960s version never did because they didn't have the technology to put that on screen in the 60s. I'm fine with that. I'm, mm-hmm. And when they started out these movies, they weren't, it wasn't the internet. They weren't feeling like they needed to write out the laws of hyperspace. So I'm fine if there's inconsistencies, but it would be kind of nice if part of what they're doing here is kind of retconning that a little bit of, like you said, of, you know, here's how hyperspace used to work and here's how it now works. And now we're going to try and have this unified theory that ties it all together. So, you know, not the thing I most want out of these books, but it could be fun. And even in the same sense, if you really think about it as a little bit more of a scientific aspect, if you just take the, say, the galaxy, the GFFA where Star Wars takes place, is roughly the size of the Milky Way. Right. The If you were to jump into hyperspace and say you were going 10 times the speed of light, some of these planets, especially in our system, like our closest... Um, star to Earth is like four or five light years away. Right. That means even if we want to get to the closest star system, if we travel 10 times the speed of light, it's going to take us six months. Yeah. So with that being said, plot device hyperspace is pretty much just away from one place to get to one place to the other really quickly. But physically, it wouldn't take, it would just take way too long. I think of it more now almost like a, like a, a wormhole or how there's the right. theory of how you could get to, you just basically bend a piece of paper from one end to the other and you get to that point. That's how hyperspace right. works. And I think that'd be great. Just cause, you know, I've loved all the movies, but you know, there are times like in rogue one, which even that is one of my favorite movies, the ability of ships to jump really fast from planet to planet. It's a little confusing. So it'd be right. kind of fun to explain it. Especially cause in like empire strikes back, they talk about how the ship is damaged and sublight. They have to get to, um, they have to get to Bespin, and if you look at it, I think the way they describe it is it takes the Millennium Falcon from the time where they leave the asteroid field and the, the um, Star Destroyer like six weeks to get there because that's how long Luke's training is. In the movie, it makes it seem like it takes two hours. Yeah, I think it just takes half an afternoon, which the, there's no way at sublight speeds you could have two star systems that are that close to each other. Right, um, and Luke Luke can't get trained that quick either. So, but for the it's it's plot timing. You yeah, know? exactly. And like I said, I'm fine with it, but it'd be fun if they kind of explained it a bit. Yeah. Uh, speaking of timing, we've gone a long way. I want to start wrapping up. <clears throat> Is there any other kind of last comments you want to make or things to bring up? 
Um, the only other thing I thought was kind of interesting is when they were talking about one of the things in the Hetzal system was that they're like, yeah, by the way, they're developing this thing on this planet called Bacta. Right. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, because Bacta in the Star Wars movies is pretty much the thing that keeps people from dying from major injuries. Like Luke, after he got attacked by the Wampa, was in a Bacta tank, and yep. it healed his injuries pretty well. Back then it was just, you got hurt, you know, I, all right, you, you get to deal with it. Like how it is for us these days. You take six weeks to heal from a broken foot. Yeah. You know, there it's it's healed instantaneously, like overnight. And that's another one of those things where it's like, in the first couple of movies, it's science fiction. Who knows? Who cares? Mm-hmm. It's it's not science fiction. It's space fantasy. You know, so it's nice seeing them explaining it. The one thing I was going to put out, point out that again, it's just a little hint, but it's such a nice way of building the world that we're going to live in. Um, they mentioned the you mentioned that one of the people who the Nihil try to steal from is the Ariadu, which is mm-hmm. a planet that's going to get hit by um, some of the fragments. We didn't mean to really explain this, but what happens is the fragments are leaving hyperspace. They're basically going at almost light speed. And so you imagine like even like a, you know, a a comet the size of a car hitting a moon at light speed, which would have catastrophic effects. Um, And so they go to this planet and say, we know when the next fragments are going to emerge. We'll destroy them for you if you give us 50 million credits right now. And they blackmail them, and they let some destruction happen, and then they, they get all the money, but then they screw up, and they fail to destroy the last fragment, and a billion and a half people die on one of the moons. And the Ariadu are now very clearly like, we're not just getting justice, we're getting revenge, because that's who we are. We are hunters. You are We are predators. And we are an entire culture dedicated to... Their whole mindset is, you know, screw around and find out. They're going to come back at you. Mm-hmm. It's the planet that General Tarkin, that Grand Moff Tarkin comes from, right? And they're they're a bunch of warriors. Yeah. And uh, the one thing I'll explain to this because it was the one thing about regarding the fragments that kind of was a little bit hard to dis- understand is that, and I think uh, one of the guys in the Star Wars, um, they have a storybook group that basically helps steer the way that the stories go right and what happens is if you're in hyperspace you you have an engine that puts you through hyperspace well the ship exploded so technically there's no engine that is pushing these things along anymore but what they explained it was is that once these things were in there they were still traveling at faster than light speed right momentum so once their momentum it's not there is the the hyperspace in itself is a vacuum so there will be resistance to cause them to slow down once the fragments slow down to sublight speed is when they exited hyperspace. Right. So it would have been like in technical terms, there's no engine to put them through there anymore. They're just going to exit hyperspace right away. But that's not the way that they explained how this actually works. So it makes it for better storytelling because that way they have no idea where the <laughs> the emergences are going to happen and put different systems into you yeah. know jeopardy. I mean, there's definitely some hand wavy science. Just if you think about. Oh, yeah. The incredible emptiness of most space, the idea that this mm-hmm. many fragments would actually, like, hit things is astronomically small, quite literally. But you're right. It, it, I'm happy with the hand waviness for that to work. So, Brian, thank you so much for being a part of this. I'm really looking forward to more. And to our fans, thank you so much. Um, what'd you think? If this is a book you loved or you – if this is a book that you did read, what'd you think? Let us know. What do you agree with us on? What do you disagree? If you haven't read it. What's your take on it now that you've heard us talk about it? Are you excited to read more? Are you going to go read it? Do you want to just hear more for the uh, the stories like this? Please let us know. 
You can find all the social media for this website, either by going to strandedpanda.com and clicking on the Star Wars Universe podcast, or go to my own website for my podcasts, theethicalpanda.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, all those places. It's where I talk about all of my podcasting, whole discussions about stuff like this. I'm always happy to get feedback, always happy to hear what people think, hear questions, thoughts like that. In terms of what the Star Wars Universe podcast is doing, we're going to go week by week through the rest of the Clone Wars and through the rest of, and then Star Wars Rebels. The plan is to be finished with all of that, as well as all the movies, by the time we get to the end of this year, so we're ready for all the new content and everyone's been caught up to speed. But then we're also going to break it up with special episodes like this. So um, we're going to talk about the books. We may even talk about some of the video games because Fallen, Fallen Order clearly has a very good story. But I'm terrible oh, yeah. at platformer games, so I don't know if I'm ever going to learn all the story, which I have some thoughts about that, but we'll get to that in a second. I wish you could actually YouTube all the cutscenes and the, yeah. the playing. It's about three hours long, but I just, it's worth it. I just wish they made it an RPG instead of a platformer, but that's another discussion. We'll get to it. But <laughs> whatever it is, if there's something you want us to talk about, let us know. Um, between Brian, myself, Ashley, Paul, Ricky, Sarah, Jeff, we've got a great confluence of uh, Star Wars fans here who love talking about it. We'd love to get into you. So... Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much for all the fans. Have a great day. <laughs>